take over? Here. I'm telling you, don't join the church. You never get away. Okay, a couple of uh, announcements before we start, uh, things I want to talk to you about. One is I mentioned the inquirer's class. If you're interested in the way we do things here at the church, why we do it, doesn't commit you to anything. Uh, we have that class afterwards, and uh, we have lunch included as well. And it's your chance to um, find out about the church and ask questions. It is one of the steps toward membership. Another thing is that don't forget, two weeks from today, we'll be at the amphitheater. Right, Mark? Two weeks from today, we'll be at the amphitheater. So that's a fun time. Life changes. For those of you that have not been to our church before and are visiting, everything changes in the summer. Instead of two services, we have one at 9 o'clock. And it is a great time outdoors. Bring your sunscreen and your jacket because it's early. It'll be a little cool. The first time you'll hear more about it. So we have the amphitheater coming. Next one is if you look on the back of your bulletins, we have VBS starting. Um, and we have need of some things. We need your help. Okay. You see this kind of like it looks like a Christmas tree over here with things hanging on it? Those are the things that we still need to make VBS happen. And here's the way it works. When you walk over there, it says, I need so many boxes of this or so many bags of this. And there's two little mitts hanging there. The first one tells you what the need you need, we need. And the second one is you put your name on it and just lay it there. And that tells us who's bringing it. So by the end of the day today, I need all those gone. If they're not, we're going to lock the doors. Okay? <laughs> You've heard of churches doing this with donations. We're doing it with VBS. <laughs> Because last year we had 330-something students, I don't know, kids here in this room right here uh, all week long so we could use your help. But in addition to that, please take something and help, uh, help us with VBS. In addition to that, please pray. This is a very vital part of our outreach and ministry. You've heard me say last year I think we had 75 families registered that have no church affiliation. And this is a, a, just a, a, a chance, a window into uh, channel into how to get into their lives a little bit and tell them a little bit more about the Lord. So pray. This is a very significant time in our church ministry year. Okay? So two things about VBS. Pray and grab one of those and help us. We can use it. All right. Today we're finishing Isaiah. Uh, the Lord speaks. We're finishing the series. We wanted to get you back into the Old Testament. It's very easy for us um, to start in the new because we're so familiar with it and try to go back. We wanted to take at least one series this year, every year actually, and start in the old, try to make sense of it in its context, and then move forward. So today we're finishing that. We called it The Lord Speaks because all throughout Isaiah, including chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord has spoken. The Lord speaks. And when the Lord speaks, we certainly want to hear what he has to say, don't we? So we have traced our way through the book. Now, remember, I said at the beginning, Isaiah is very complex. It's a challenge to read. It's not linear like we think of books when we read it. For those of you that have read it, you know what I mean. Lots of poetry, lots of language, lots of things that you're kind of scratching your head thinking, where am I? In the, I don't even know where I am in the history. And you just it's easy to get muddled in there. So Isaiah, I've divided into three sections based on people a lot smarter than me. The first section, 39 chapters, is really focused on the southern kingdom in Jerusalem, Judah, as the northern kingdom is being destroyed by the Assyrians, and they're, they're watching their northern neighbors be annihilated, their, their country ceasing to exist, and they have a choice. 
Do they turn to the one true living God or do they uh, try to make peace? They chose the wrong route. They entered into a pact with the Assyrians and tried to make peace with them. It was disastrous. Starting in chapter 40, 40 through 55, they're now 150 years later. They have been taken into captivity. The southern kingdom has. Their country no longer exists. And now they have all of this wonderful language which we're familiar with to remind them in captivity that God has not forgotten them. He has remembered them. So many of the stories that we read at Christmas come out of this middle section there. Then the third section, uh, 55 through, uh, 56 through 66, the last section, they're now uh, a remnant has come back into the country, and that's addressed to them to help them to see that God has, is not finished with his people. He's not finished. He has something planned for them. So when we traced our way through, what we did was we began to surface themes that arise in the book. Rather than to take you through the book, we surface themes. So we started off, the Lord is the Holy One, in the first seven chapters. In fact, it's all throughout Isaiah, but it's emphasized right from the beginning that our God is the Holy One. There we looked at Jesus as called the Holy One of Israel. Then we move from there to the nations. You may remember there that, uh, that God is looking at the nations and, and deciding what to do with them. So there's 13 or 14 chapters right in the middle where he expresses his wrath because of their, um, because of their rebellion, because of their, what they're doing. Uh, they're turning against him. They're serving idols. They're abusing the people, the poor, the widows, the mar uh, marginalized, the orphans. They're abusing them. So he expresses his wrath. Then he talks in Isaiah 40 about the remnant. He never forgets the remnant, and he always has a remnant in place throughout the history of the world. Those who are his people who turn to him in faith. There's always a remnant. Never are we alone. 42, in chapters 42 and 43, we talked about the Lord calls his witness. Now, if you think about this, this is kind of a movement through the book. It's almost like a crescendo. So he starts off with the nations. Things are bad. He wants to bless them, but they're really bad. Then he goes to the remnant. I'm going to remember the few that are faithful. And then he says, I'm going to call those few forward as witnesses. That's where he called uh, his witnesses deaf and blind. That was us. We're deaf and blind. And then he creates this image, a, a, a picture of a courtroom scene where he sues the gods. And he says, all right, I'll call your witnesses and I'll call my witnesses and we'll see who is real. If your witnesses show, for, show up and they tell us to give us their testimony, then we will acknowledge that you are true and real. And guess what? No one shows up. So he calls his witnesses, the deaf and the blind, the idiots. That's us. Okay. What makes you a credible witness, we've said all along, is not because of what you do. It's not because of what you say. What makes you a credible witness is because of what God does in you. That's what makes you credible. Because it reflects his glory. It reflects his majesty, his compassion, his affection, his love. And so what makes you a credible witness is the work that God is doing in you. That's what makes you credible. And that's what the early church figured out. All the way through Acts, we have seen the Lord. You can't take that away from us. We have touched him, John says. We beheld him. Our eyes have seen him. Peter says we ate with him. You can't take that away from us. We know it's true. It's what God does in you. 
We move from there to the idea of restoration, that God is in the business of, res- of restoring what's broken, starting with our personal lives. But he's, more, he's concerned with more than that. Our communities, our culture, our world, all of creation. That's the heart of the gospel message, that, that God who made all of this cares about all of creation. Then we went to Isaiah 52, the Lord has good news, and that's where we have the image of the, the <clears throat> they sent the battle out and the, how sweet it is on the mountains, how lovely when the messenger comes running. It's peace, it's good news. We won. You don't want the other enemy, the other army to show up because that means you lost. And so that's the front runner. That's the beginning of the gospel. It's called good news. And we saw how that moves into the New Testament is that language that we have the good news. We know the truth. The God who created all this loves us. So he has good news. Last week we saw the, talked about the Messiah, Isaiah 53 and 61. What a surprise that the Messiah would not come with strength and break the, break the iron fist of the um, army, the military that had occupied them, just the opposite. He would come and give his life. He would suffer. Who would have thought of that? If any of us wrote the potential history of how to redeem people, I don't think we would have ever even thought of that if the Bible hadn't told us. We need to find somebody who's going to die for us. huh? Somebody who's going to be sacrificed, who's going to be executed. So you've got this movement through Isaiah. And uh, you have God's wrath being displayed against Judah for turning to the pagan kings rather than him for deliverance. The Lord looked, and instead of finding justice, he found bloodshed. Instead of finding righteousness, he found cries of distress. That's what he looked in Israel. That's what he found, his own people. And then when he looked at all the nations, he found that everywhere he looked, the problem is huge. There's no way we can overstate how powerful the fall was and sin and brokenness. That's called total depravity. That's the technical term. What that means is there is no aspect of your being that is not influenced destructively and tragically by sin. That's what the Lord saw. So then Isaiah begins to point us in a better direction in Isaiah 40. We reached the high point last week with the coming suffering servant. We know him as the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus Christ. The word Christ is the Greek word for anointed one. The Hebrew term is uh, Messiah. The English translation is Messiah. So when you hear Christ, think Messiah. It's not his last name. Okay? That's the title. That's the responsibility he took on to be our Messiah in a world that is totally, totally devastated. So today we reach the conclusion. I've called it the Lord is Yahweh. But what do we mean by this? When we talk about the name of the Lord, what do we mean by this? Today is the introduction to the amphitheater. Because in the amphitheater, we're going to spend time talking about God. More technically, it's the fatherhood of God. We talked in the, uh, two years ago about Jesus, and we talked last summer about the Spirit. This summer, we're going to be talking about God. And what do we learn about God as Yahweh? What does that mean to us? So today's an introduction to that, if you will. In Exodus 3, this is where I'm going to start. I'm not going to say much about it. We'll come back to it in the amphitheater. But in Exodus 3, you have Moses in the burning bush. And God is uh, trying to convince him and order him and compel him to go back and lead his people out of Egypt. And Moses is a tough character. doesn't want to go. doesn't want to do it. By the way, he's not the only one like that in the Bible uh, or in our church. (laughs) 
when God wants us to do something, we often say, wait a minute, I don't know if I really want to do that or not. Moses is no different. And so Moses says to him in the middle of this in verse 14, God said to Moses, uh, no, back, I'm going to back up to verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, you notice he said, suppose I go. <laughs> Not quite willing to do it yet, but let's just say for the sake of argument that I do go back to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, ask me, what is his name? What do I tell them? This is a very significant question. Because throughout the ancient Near East, none of the gods, they knew their names. The gods never spoke, so they created all kinds of practices to divine and discern their names, their identities, their wills, all of that. And here we have the one true God having a conversation face-to-face, voice-to-voice with Moses. That had never happened before. And Moses said, well, suppose I go back. What is your name? What am I going to tell them? I mean, they, they're familiar with Ra, the sun god in Egypt, and all the other gods at the Egyptian, of the Egyptian pantheon. What's your name? And here's what he says. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. We... We, we use the term Yahweh, but the truth is we're not really clear on how to say it. It is a form of the verb to be. So I am is, is, a, is a conjugation, the technical term of the verb to be. I am, something we use in our language all the time. I am what? He doesn't answer that question. We're going to work to answer that because the entire Bible as God reveals himself answers the question, I am what to you? So he starts here and he says, I am has sent you. So God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, and that's all caps. And this is this phrase, Yahweh, the name of the one true living God. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. That's his name. I am. I am what? Today we're just going to look at one piece of that. It has behind it the idea that he is not only self-sufficient, but he meets all of our needs. But what does this mean in Isaiah? And this is where we're going to finish with Isaiah. This title is characteristic. It's all the way through Isaiah. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to be in Isaiah for most of the rest of the time. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, we see it. Your different translations say different things about it. He says, unless, in verse 9 of chapter 1, unless the Lord, this is a T and IV, unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom and would have been like Gomorrah. The uh, Holman Christian Study Bible, the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, they translate it Lord of Hosts. Some of you that are a little bit older are familiar with that language. You look at the T and IV and the NIV, it's the Lord Almighty. If you look at the message, it's the God of angels' armies, armies that are defined by angels. He's the God of that. If you look at the Net Bible, the NET, out of Dallas Seminary, it's the Lord who leads armies. So this, this is a challenging Hebrew phrase to translate, but it has at the heart of it the idea of God as a warrior, or Yahweh is a warrior. He's a warrior God. 
Now, that fits perfectly within the context of the ancient Near East because how did you know that your God was powerful? Well, there's several ways. One is do your crops grow? Another one is do, do, your, do your wives get pregnant and have children? But a, a community way of understanding it is if we defeat the enemy, then that means that our God went before us is more and is more powerful than all the other gods. You can understand why the Israelites had trouble when they lost. Because what that communicated to them is our God is not as powerful as the other gods. They could never grasp the idea that God may have done this intentionally for a reason. So this idea is that God is a warrior. He has power. He controls all the might, the strength, and the power behind it. So it's challenging to translate, but it has the idea of that he is the God who leads armies. He is the, he is the God of army, this phrase here. So the warrior imagery is used all throughout. I just read one nine. As a warrior, he is the one who leads survivors to carry forth his name. He defeated the other enemies and made sure that he left enough remnant that his name would be carried forth. If you turn over to chapter 13, you find, by the way, it's all the way throughout. I just picked a sampling here. Chapter 13, verse 4. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. So you have this picture of this big battle and all the nations are coming together. The Lord Almighty, there's that phrase, is mustering an army for war. There it's very clear. It is the Lord who is a warrior who is gathering an army to fight against Babylon, one of the enemies. They're bringing all of their army together. It doesn't matter how big it is because our God is the one true God. He's going to fight for us. This imagery is very important because the king of the kings of the southern uh, kingdom had a choice. Do we place our trust in this God who is a warrior on our behalf? or on the kings of Assyria. They made the wrong choice. If you turn over to chapter 24, you find it again. <clears throat> this whole imagery, chapter 24, verse 21. Um, in that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. The moon will be dismayed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty, there's that phrase, will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before its elders with great glory. It is the warrior who will gather all of the rebellious people, people who reject him, and he will reign over them. Turn over to chapter 42. Chapter 42, verse 13. The Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior he will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. For a long time, I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry, I grasp, I pant, I shout. So the Lord is pictured as a warrior, raging and shouting in triumph. He's defeating the enemy. Can you see the picture that's growing here? Of this title? That one of the things we learn about God as Yahweh our God, is that he fights our battles. He protects us. I want to look at one more because in Isaiah 59 because this is especially relevant to us today. It's, image, it's, it's imagery that you'll be familiar with. This is in the final section of Isaiah. So this is 
really talking about the Lord has not left his people to die. He hasn't. He has a plan. He has a future plan. Isaiah 59, starting in verse 15. Here's this imagery again. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looks, looked and was displeased that there was no justice. We keep coming back to this imagery, don't we? Justice. This is important to the Lord. We take care of those who can't take care of themselves. That is our responsibility. And as long as we have one person who requires our help, our work is not done. It's not done. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. He did it himself. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. You heard that imagery before? It's Ephesians 6. Put on the full armor of God. I'll say a word about that in just a second. He puts on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay. Wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes, for he will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory, for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. So he's pictured here as suiting himself up for battle. He's putting on the armament. When we get to Ephesians 6, we talked about this a while back, but just a refresher, a short refresher. In Ephesians 6, when we put on the full armor of God, we often try to define this language in terms of us against Satan and being good Western individualists. We often picture ourselves as fighting Satan. That's not the orientation. You may remember I showed the clip from Gladiator. When the military, the Roman legion went out to fight, what did they do? They lined up side by side, and they took all their shields, and they put them together in one long line of battle. And then another line would get underneath, and they'd put all their shields on top like that. That's the imagery. Paul's very technical in his language that's being used here. So two things surface from that. Number one, it's, it's not a, this is, the spiritual battle is not a battle between you and Satan. I guarantee you, you will lose, hands down. Okay? This is a description of what we as a community of faith do to withstand Satan coming after us. That's why the language is stand firm. Hold on to the ground already won by Christ. But the, here's the, the background behind it right here. It's the Lord who puts on his armament first. I take that to mean, because Paul at least alludes to this, if not quotes it, I take that to mean that God, as our warrior God, is the first one to suit up in battle. We just follow his lead. We do the same. So don't get all, in Ephesians 6, don't get all caught up in the whole question of how do I defeat Satan? That's not the goal in Ephesians 6. The goal is we follow this warrior God. We put our armament on as a church, and we stand firm, and we don't let Satan defeat us. What's the number one way we know that he is winning? Division. Division. I will, as long as I'm alive, sacrifice myself to protect the unity of this church. 
That is the most important thing we can do. If we can't be unified, we have nothing to say to a world that understands fragmentation, division, schism. They understand that. What they don't understand is unity. I don't care how bad you fail, how bad you fall into sin, or better yet, run into sin. It doesn't matter to me how bad that is. I want to come after you and rescue you. I want all of us to be that way, protecting our unity. Okay, so what does this tell us about God? <clears throat> Warfare is not left to earthly powers. Is your faith in the Lord, or is your faith in our military, which admittedly is very powerful. Not going to deny it. But where's your faith? We serve a warrior God. The pagan kings, they think that they are the only military power of significance, and their God is the only strong God. Look in Isaiah 37. There's a very interesting little passage here. <clears throat> you have um, Hezekiah, the king of the southern kingdom, and you have Sennacherib, and he begins to taunt Israel. 37, verse 9. Now Sennacherib received the report that Tirkaha, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight against him. When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. Say to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you. Hear that language? Do not let the God that you do depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. Will you be delivered? Did the God of the nations that were destroyed by my ancestors deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Repheth, and the people of Eden who were in Tel Asar. Where is the king of Hamath or the king of Arpad? Where are the kings of Lair, Sepharvaim, Enoch, Gibah? Where are they? We totally annihilated them. So don't listen to your God because the people before you made that mistake. Hear the taunt? He's taunting Israel. So Hezekiah prays and asks God to defeat the Assyrian king. Verse 14. King Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord, and that's all caps, this one true living God, Yahweh, and he spread it out before him. And Hezekiah prayed and said, Lord Almighty, there's that phrase, warrior God, God of the armies, the God of Israel enthroned between the cherubim. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule you, the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste. They have devastated all these people in their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. What is he looking for here? He's looking for military strength. He's looking for God to step in and protect them in a military way. And then he asks of what the, he wants the Lord to do. Verse 20. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that we can live a happy life from now on. Listen to what he says. Deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, Yahweh, are the only God. 
This is asking God to intervene, not for the sake of their protection, but for the sake of all the pagans who didn't know him. That's a wonderful verse. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. The truth is that Yahweh is the only true God, and to acknowledge him as the Lord Almighty is to acknowledge him as the one true God. So when you see that phrase in your Bible, Lord of hosts, Lord Almighty, Lord of armies, however they phrase it, just remember, when you read that and you acknowledge him in your prayers, it's to acknowledge him as the one true living God. It's also to acknowledge him as the warrior God who protects us, but is willing to use us for the sake of the people around us. Remember I said earlier, when you suffer, that's the common language we share with the world. The world gets suffering. When we suffer, the world gets it. What they don't get is our response if we act like Christians. We differentiate ourselves and we bring glory to the Lord and we begin to teach the world that there is a God who cares about them by the way we respond. So, what's the significance? Okay, let's look at this, the, la the last great act of this warrior God in Isaiah 66. The final chapter in Isaiah, in Isaiah. Isaiah 66 has both positive and negative pictures of the Lord's return. We're going to look at the positive uh, because we're as a, ch a church, and I want you to understand the Lord, how he works in our lives. Look at verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you built for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand created all these things so that they came into being, declares the Lord? The Lord looks with favor on those who turn to him. That's what he's saying. He goes on to finish chat verse 2. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. That's us. That's who the Lord finds favor with. And then you move down to verse 10. Another little, another little blurb there. He's talking about Jerusalem, and I think he's talking about the new Jerusalem because of what he's about to say after this. In verse 10, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord says. I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice, and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made, made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. This Jerusalem is going to become a place of blessing and peace. And then finally in verse 19. <clears throat> verse 19. I will set a sign among them and will send some of those who survive to the nations. Listen to that language. This is the mission of God right here. Again, all throughout the Bible. I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Lydians, the Lydians, Dennis's archers, to Tubal and Greece and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering 
to the Lord. On horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, said the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offering to the temple of the Lord and ceremonially clean vessels. Paul uses the imagery of clean vessels, by the way, later on in the New Testament to refer to us. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. Later on, Peter says, we are all a kingdom of priests. Hear how this imagery begins to, they see this imagery and they start to use it to describe us, the redeemed. As a new heavens and a new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another. All people will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Paul uses this, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, Philippians 2. And they, yeah, and it, it says the Lord. The Lord will send out his witnesses to the nations so that they will hear of his fame and see his glory. This is what's behind all of the motivation. If you look at, try to guess the motivation of all the New Testament authors, they went out and these disciples and apostles, this is their motivation. Listen to these words in Romans 15. This tells us where Paul got it from. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. And it's written, and he quotes all these Old Testament passages. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. The root of Jesse will spring up, and all who rise to rule over the nations in Gentile in him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow. Key word. What's the impact of overflowing? Overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that what happens in us overflows to the people around us. We have impact. We are the fulfillment of this prophecy. Made possible and accomplished only by Jesus, the Messiah. We are the vehicles through which he displays his glory to the nations. Ephesians 3. To God be the glory. Amen. Uh, uh, To God be the glory in the church. We are the vehicles that he uses. But we can have confidence because he is a warrior God. Why don't we stop and let's ask God to use us in that way. Father, we are grateful. Thank you for loving us. Father, we um, ask that you be our warrior, that you put on that armor and you lead us in a way, Lord, to protect our unity but a way that causes the hope that you've given us to overflow in the lives of our friends and neighbors. Thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for words over, written over 1,500 years that carries the same message. You love us. You care for us. You've not forgotten us. You remember us. Help us, Lord, to be the instruments of your grace in the lives of the people around us. We pray this in your son's name. And invite the ushers to come forward and take the offering. Paul envisioned in the Corinthian epistles, you've heard me say he talks about it's an expression of the gospel, the good news. Paul envisioned that when people looked at the church, when the world looks at the church, they would see generous people as a testimony of their faith. 
Thank you for being generous. Going to invite those who are going to service communion to come forward and prepare us. You know the story of communion. I'm going to read the Matthew account. Okay? This is in Matthew 26. The disciples asked Jesus, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? What a great question. Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Do you remember what the Passover is? When he led the Israelites out of Egypt, the last great sign and plague, they put blood on the doorposts and he passed over them. The death angel passed over them that night redeemed them, gave them life. That's the meaning behind what Jesus did. He is the true Passover, Paul says. So Jesus gave them instructions. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's the message of Passover. That's the message of a warrior God. That's the message of a God who understands exactly what has to be done for our sake. I'm going to invite you to come forward and, and celebrate communion with us. If this is your confession, then join us with us. When you come forward, pray. Pray with one of us. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for being a warrior God. And thank you for, uh, thank you for sacrificing your life, Jesus, for us so that we may have new life. In your name we pray. Amen.
as we conclude Isaiah, we just looked at one aspect of who God is. He is a warrior God. This summer, we're going to look at many more. Because as God reveals himself to us, we find, think of a, think of a diamond that just reflects light or a prism that refracts light. That's what we find with God. He just reveals himself to us in new and fresh ways all the way through the Bible. And each one of those impacts us. So I look forward to seeing you at the amphitheater. In the meantime this week, remember, God is a warrior God. When you put on the armor of God, you already have a leader who's done that right now. Have a great week. Go in peace.